Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. It's where we've been. It's where we'll be through the fall. Uh, we are in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians uh, in our series called The Cross. And uh, we've been going over this for the last several weeks. Paul wrote this letter to the 1 Corinthian church, a church that found itself very much in a situation like we find ourselves today, uh, in a culture very similar to what we find today. Um, maybe not as fast-paced as we are today or as creative in how much sin and stupidity we do, but still much of the same issues. And uh, Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, and it's a pretty scathing letter. letter. We talked about that, but he's trying to get them to realize what kind of the theme verse we've talked about. He's trying to get them to remember and realize that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. He immediately, you know, Paul wants to lay out the case that the God of the Bible, Jesus, who came as his son, the Holy Spirit who comes that Jesus sent when he ascended into heaven, that whole picture is a message of the need for us to die to ourselves and understand that the world around us is perishing, that we're perishing, but there's a power that's working, that's saving us and that will raise us from the dead someday and will save our world. It's a radical message. It's a message like none other of all the other religions of the world. And it's a message that Paul has realized that the First Corinthian church is no longer taking seriously. They, they kind of, yeah, 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 we believe in Jesus, but they set aside God. They set aside the word of God. They set aside the responsibility to take seriously that relationship. And they're just kind of doing life and adding Jesus to it, adding God to it which is almost identical to what we do today. It's very similar. And so we've been looking over the last several weeks at this letter. We looked the first week that Paul lays out the case for our identity, finding our identity in what Christ did on the cross. The next week, he kind of unpacks as we look through the, again, looking further in chapter one, the difference between foolishness and understanding, and even saying that there is a foolishness to the world if you walk with Christ. They're going to look at you like a fool, but don't act like a fool and do the things that God says are foolish. And we need to understand the difference. And we need to have wisdom, that's what he talks about next, in how to do that, and we need to judge correctly. He talks about judging, that wisdom is knowing how to judge. It's not not judging because we judge every day, it's judging properly. He says, and if you do that, then my desire and what you should be uh, becoming is spiritual people. But he says, instead, what's happening is that you're carnal people, or maybe not even God's people at all. And he challenges that. And carnal people are people that say they believe in Christ, but they have not surrendered control. And then He said, now, if you are a spiritual person, then you will be found faithful with the things of God. And when Christ comes back, there's an anticipation to know that I will be found faithful because of what Jesus has done for me and what he continues to do for me so that one day when I come to the end of my life, I've lived out a faithful life to God because he did it through me. And then last week, we looked at this idea that Paul lays out that if you do those things, you're going to come to a place where you're going to have to, de- you're going to, have to deal with sincerity and truth. We talked about the fact that you can be um, sincerely wrong and you can be truthfully insincere. And that's not what Paul wants. He wants us to be truly sincere in Christ and truly truthful in Christ, understanding the message of the cross and the resurrection and what it means. 
And so we looked at that and we looked about at the fact that Paul was writing to the First Corinthian church about a specific issue. He builds up to this issue of sexual immorality, in particular, a son who is sleeping with his father's wife and living with her. And, and the church won't even confront it. The church won't deal with the sin. It's like, well, whatever they do in their house is what they do in their house, which is identical to kind of what we unfortunately do today in the church. And Paul talks about that. He lays that out and he says, if you're sincere in your faith and you care about truth, you're going to have to step into people's lives and love them by warning them, being patient with them, caring for them. And we looked at that. You can go back and look at the podcast or look at the message if you want to do that. Today, what we're going to look at, because Paul walks through this and he gets to this sincerity and truth and he knows that once you get to this point, And now you're confronting sin and you're dealing with it righteously and you're following Matthew 18, what Jesus says, that you go one-on-one to someone. Then you go two-on-one about a specific sin, not like they annoy you. That's different. People are just annoying. I'm annoying. I annoy some of you. I get it. We all have our idiosyncrasies. That's not sin. That's just you, okay? It doesn't mean you shouldn't change it, but we can be a lot more patient with that than sin that's hurting people or what the Bible calls as sin. And off limits to us because it hurts us and hurts others and it hurts the glory of God. And so Paul now realizes as he's going through this progression that what's going to happen if you follow this is you're going to have to start settling disputes. Because what's going to happen is you're going to end up with disputes over who's wrong, who's right, who are you to tell me in the church. And Paul knows this. He's watched this 1 Corinthian church do this. He's watched the Jews do this before the 1 Corinthian church. The Jews of his day, you have to remember, Paul was a Pharisee. They were the most religious, most elite people in the religious community of the day. I mean, these guys had the entire Old Testament memorized, word for word. Could quote it. I mean, um, like... Paul was a Pharisee who went around killing Christians and settling the dispute of Jesus. Jesus is not the Messiah, and I have been given the right by the Jews and by the Roman Empire to kill those and settle the dispute to prove to everyone, see, Jesus isn't God because he let them die. He let them go to their own cross, and no God would would allow that to happen to someone he loves. And Paul One day met Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was transformed and Jesus settled the dispute in Paul's life. And Paul's life was radically transformed and he became a believer, repented of his sin, asked forgiveness, and then became one of the greatest gospel preachers in history because of what God did in his life. And now Paul was going around settling the dispute over who Jesus really was. Before I get into this this morning... I want to pray because this is a hard topic. All of 1 Corinthians, when we, once we get to this point, what we're going through in 1 Corinthians, it's not like we're going to hit a point where we're like, oh, that's so nice. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 is all right, the love chapter, but even that's sandwiched between a mess, okay? I'm just letting you know. So like, as we go through this, I just want to pray and ask God to kind of settle our hearts and help us to listen Because what I'm going to tell you this morning is probably something that you may never have thought about or listened to before. Something that we've seen done wrongly, and so we just do what we do because, well, everybody else does it. So let me pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to be in your word. You wrote it through Paul, through Peter, through Moses, through the people. You allowed them to keep their 
personality and use them to write down these words for us this morning, but they're your words. And Lord, help us to not dismiss them. Help us to not do what has been done so often through the centuries of, oh, well, that was back then, and God has changed, and things have changed now. Lord, you don't change. You fulfill things. You finish things, but you don't change. And so, Lord, open our hearts this morning to hear from your word. Open our hearts to take seriously what we're going to hear, because we just don't really have a framework for thinking through this, unfortunately, in our culture very well. So help us to see your will be done. Help us to embrace our own cross so that we might help others settle the dispute they have with you and repent and come to know you and surrender their lives and experience your love and joy and know that their account, their dispute with you has been settled forever and they have been given grace and forgiveness. We pray in your name. Amen. So drop in. 1 Corinthians 6.1 says, If any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Sit on that for a minute. Do, I mean, Paul comes out boldly and he's like, how dare you? That's the, if you look at the, like the Greek there, Paul is saying, how dare you do this in the church? How dare you go to settle the disputes you have by going to earthly legal authorities? Like, you got to remember, Paul is writing this in the context, if you keep reading, of sexual immorality. He just got done talking about it. He's going to talk about it more, and he's going to go into chapter 7 and talk about it some more in the context of marriage. It seems weird that Paul's bringing up legal advice in the middle of talking about, like, sexual problems. Oh, wait. Almost all the fights and lawyers and issues that we have in our culture today come from people having affairs and kids out of wedlock and having to go get child support. And, uh, interesting that Paul was smart enough to realize that when you don't do family God's way, when you don't do what God says about how to treat one another, and instead you pursue your lusts, you're going to end up with a lot of disputes, a lot of mess, a lot of using one another, and it's not a picture of the gospel that Paul wants this church to be giving or any of us to give. And Paul knows that the tendency is, when you don't get what you want, you keep going to an authority and appealing to a higher authority that will agree with you and squish the person underneath you. That, that's what we've been taught to do. You get people on your side and you try to get the right authorities who are more powerful than the people they have on their side, on your side, so that then you can win and then you get to be right. And Paul knows that's what's going on in this church, that people are divided over these issues and specifically what he got, just got done talking about. That you're taking sides. We looked at that the last several weeks. That there's this idea of, well, well I believe this and I think this versus saying, what does God say? What does God want? And what did Jesus actually do and model when he walked on the earth? We just don't want to deal with that question. I don't, often. I'd rather just find answers and cling to it and be like, I've already got my answer. My life's working out well. I've got it all figured out. Don't bug me. I don't want to be challenged on this. And Paul is saying, look, 
You guys keep taking your legal disputes over and over and over again to earthly authorities, and he says, how dare you do that? That that is not what a believer in Jesus who who believes in the power of the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ, who believes in God's word, that's not how we're to handle it. That's not how, we don't go to court. However, you can go to court against a non-believer, biblically and even in the Old Testament. And if you remember Matthew chapter 18, what is the last step That you do, and what does Paul say in the chapter before this about the young man who won't submit to the authority of God? It says, You turn them over to Satan and you declare them a non believer. That doesn't mean you do it meanly. The church has not been given the power of the sword. I don't know if you know this. We haven't been. The government's been given the power of the sword, all earthly government. The church itself tried to take the power of the sword. A few thousand years ago. It didn't go well. I don't know if you know your history. Constantine came to power. There's questionable if he was even a believer. Okay? And then everybody decided, wow, if we're going to have power, then we just need to get baptized and call ourselves Christians. So a bunch of wicked people got power. That's literally what happened. And then they said, you know what? I think God wants us to take back the Holy Land. So we need to start, you know, sending people off to wars so we can take back the land God wants. Jesus doesn't want to land anymore. He's building a new one, and he said he's going to bring it back, just so you know. It doesn't mean he's still not blessing the land. It doesn't mean he still doesn't care, because he's going to bring Jerusalem down, a new Jerusalem, right? Because he loves to fulfill his covenants to the people he's made in the past. That's all true. But when we as Christians start to take the sword on our own, be careful. Now, here's the deal. As a believer, I can defend myself with my sword. I just can't run the other person through who is a believer, biblically. That that I'm not allowed to do. You know how frustrating that is? Like, I just want to end this. And you're a terrible swordsman. So, yeah, I'm done. I don't have to put up with you anymore. Right? Paul is writing and he's saying, you guys keep going. You're using your Roman citizenship, which Paul actually used his Roman citizenship at one point. He, at one point, he appealed to a higher authority. It's not wrong to go to the government. Hear me out. It's not wrong to appeal to the government. It's wrong to run to the government because you don't like what God and the church is telling you and what the scriptures say. It's wrong to run to the government without having a conversation with the church and submitting to one another out of the love and fear of Christ and figuring out how to do it together to bring restoration and to bring hope and to be a picture of the gospel instead of, I got my rights and I'll show you. That is the opposite of the gospel. The Bible says that Jesus came and he emptied himself of his rights. That's Philippians. He came and took on the attitude. He said, I I don't want any rights. (laughs) A matter of fact, I'm going to die for all the rights you didn't give me. <laughs> That's the cross. That is not a wonderful message in American culture, in American Republic democracy. It's not a message we want to touch or deal with. But again, you look around our cultures, you want to know why healthcare is so costly and marriage is so costly and all these things, because we got lawyers everywhere suing everybody all the time. And Christians should be different. 
And Paul is laying this out, and it gets even more uncomfortable than this first part. Because he says, how dare you? What makes you think you can do this? What makes you think that the solution that you're looking for is to go to unrighteous people and have them make a righteous decision? That's the nuttiest thing I've ever heard, Paul says. Then he goes on, he says, and not before the saints. In other words, he says, you're going to them first. Go to the saints first and then talk about how you have to appeal further. That's the right process, right? Now, the church has handled this badly over the years. Remember, the government's there to carry a sword. We're going to look at that in a minute. The church has handled this terribly, especially in the area of like sexual problems. Children who have been abused in churches. Priests and pastors who have not used their authority for the glory of God, but instead used it for their own lust and selfish gain. The government has now said the church must report if you hear of abuse. Praise God. Praise God. If the church won't take care of this, if the church won't deal with this, if the church continues to protect those who hurt the innocent and continue to just allow, thank you, Lord, that you've sent government that will stop this. Think about that for a minute, folks. That's where we're at. Because we won't take seriously what God says. And if you've hurt someone, if you've been in that place, can I tell you there is forgiveness. There is grace. There is restoration. There is hope. But there is a process to getting there that we just don't want to deal with. And so Paul is talking in this about, and, and can I just be honest, almost all lawsuits, the reason Paul's talking about lawsuits in the middle of lust and sexual immorality is because almost all lawsuits boil down to our lusts, our lust for money, our lust for relationships, our lust for our rights. It, almost all lawsuits boil down to, I refuse to die for that. Can you imagine if Jesus did that on the cross? looking out over the crowd and be like, oh, there's Peter. Okay, Lord, everybody, but I'm not dying for that. Not dying for what Peter did. Nope. Take him out. See, the gospel's that radical. It's that crazy. It messes with us that much as we're trying to make decisions. And instead, what we've done is we've created an entire system to run alongside the gospel and the body of Christ in the church. Listen, the system we have of government is just as messed up as the church system. It's not like you're going to government and getting a more righteous judge, judgment system than the church. We've just decided we think that's more righteous and we're going to do that. We're not going to walk through the process of trying to settle disputes with the saints in the church. And really the key is will we submit to anyone? That's what Paul's getting ready to talk about. The reality is you just won't submit to anybody. In 1 Peter, this is what Peter said. He said, dear friends, I urge you, as strangers and temporary residents, what kind of rights do strangers and temporary residents have to the legal system of the country they live in? Very little. Because you're not a citizen here. You don't have the same rights. He goes on and he says, conduct yourselves honor, or he says, to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you, that lust, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, that's people who don't know God, so that in a case where they speak against you, 
As those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. He's talking about a legal case. In a case where they're speaking against you, they're going before the authorities. He's like, you better be careful that your, 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 your mentality is to glorify God and to love others, not to serve your own individual rights. Then he says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. When, Paul, or when Peter wrote this, Nero had declared himself a god. Peter knew that when he wrote this down. Think about that for a minute. You think Trump's bad? You think Joe Biden's bad? I don't think either of them have come out and said, we're building a monument in D.C. and you will come and bow to it and I am God. And yet that's what Nero did, and Nero was killing Christians, I've said this before, and he was impaling them on sticks and lighting them on fire to light the streets of his city. He actually, there's even a rumor that he burnt his own city down so he could blame it on Christians, kind of like what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, where there's kind of this, you know, if we can get them to shoot at us, then we have an excuse to shoot back at them kind of thing going on. And Nero probably burnt down his own city because he hated Christians so badly, and Peter writes, whether the emperor as the supreme authority. If that doesn't mess with you, and if that didn't mess with Peter's audience, I don't know what will mess with you more. Now, does he mean, is he calling whatever the emperor does good? No, he's admitting. He's got authority. He carries a sword. That's, God, God's allowed him to be in power. I'm not sure why, but I can't, my, Peter's idea wasn't if we just get Nero out of the way, then my people can fix everything. And that's our political system today, every two years. And it's not going to work. Now, should we look at voting for righteous people? Do we have hard decisions to make because they're all sinners and it's a mess? Absolutely. And we should righteously think through those judgments. But can I tell you, they're not going to solve this. Peter knows this. Peter's writing saying, The only way you're going to solve this is to live a life glorifying God before lost people that makes them look and go, that's weird, that's different, that makes no sense to me. Either their God is really true or he's crazy. That was the cross. That God Almighty would let his son die for a bunch of people when every other king for all of human history, what was their motive for their son? To make sure he sat on the throne and never suffered. And he was wealthy, healthy, and had everything he wanted in this world. That's every other kingdom built. And God said, that ain't the plan. It's true, my son will reign. My son will be forever. But he has that right because he agreed from the foundation of the world to submit to the authority of creation And the authority of what was going to happen. And the heavenly family said, we're in for the ride together. And that's the way churches are supposed to be. Churches are supposed to be families where we're in the ride together. Understanding from the get-go that it's going to cost me. That I'm going to have to surrender my life and lay it down. Believing that God has my citizenship and my rights reserved in heaven, so there's nothing I have to really fight too hard for here. So Peter goes on and he says, 
For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Remember, Paul was talking about foolish people earlier by doing good. As God's slaves, there's another word we don't like. And it's all over the New Testament. The word doulos is used over and over again. Your Bibles might translate it servant. That is not the word. The word is slave. Now, it's not modern slavery like we practiced in America, which was super wicked, right? It's a slavery as a bond slave that you've been purchased, which Paul's going to say in a minute. You've been bought. You're not your own. Now, what do you, how do you respond to someone who has bought you and then given you everything, given you hope, who loves you and treats you like a son or a daughter? How do you respond to someone like that? That's the kind of slavery God's saying, that you understand that I deserve nothing like the prodigal son. I just want to be your slave because now I've seen how wicked the world is. I've seen the slavery of the world. I've seen the mess of the world. And I just, I'm I'm willing to be your slave if you'll take me, dad. Of course, the father picks up his son and says, I've just been waiting to see you. You're my son. Now, do you think the son then served after that like a slave for his father? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was probably a model to all this. Whenever he heard a slave complaining on his dad's property, he's like, you have no idea what real slavery is. You are treated so well here. And he probably worked harder than the slaves as a model of his gratitude so that maybe those slaves would believe his dad was as good as his dad really was. He goes on and he says, as God's slave, slaves live as free people. Don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. That's what we do today. I got grace. Grace. God forgives me. That's what Paul was dealing with with this Corinthian church. And we'll see this in a minute. Paul's like, yeah, you just keep saying that. They actually use Paul's words, his words against him in a minute. And he has to go back and be like, don't use my words that way. That is not what I meant. He goes on and Peter says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's the body of Christ. Fear God and honor the emperor. He says, honor the emperor twice. How do I honor that man? Well, you honor him by respecting the fact that you're in control, but you don't honor his stupidity. We don't honor anybody's stupidity. God, Jesus didn't honor people's stupidity. He said, that's stupid, that's wrong, that's evil. It's just what it is. But I accept the fact that you can kill me for it. That's how Jesus got on the cross, by the way. That's how he got there. Was he called everybody sin out and everybody's like, we don't like you. He's like, okay, and everyone submitted together to kill him. It goes on and it says this in Romans. It says, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. Those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Duh. If you oppose someone with a sword, right, and you can't stab them back, what happens? That's what Paul's saying. It's not wrong to oppose authority. It's not wrong to talk to authority and say, that's wrong, that's wrong. But you better expect the response to be, um, we're the authority. He goes on and he says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be afraid, unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good and you will have its approval. For government's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. 
For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. So government brings wrath and authority, often on other governments. Welcome to the entire world for centuries. God is trying to show us that there is no righteous, there is no, not, not one, no righteous government, and he raises up and tears down governments constantly to show us there is no hope without him. There is no authority that's going to last except his. And he keeps showing us that, and then we keep jumping on teams. I'll be on this, you know, team this and team that. I just want to be on team God. And I recognize this is the government or the authority I'm under. And I recognize if I stand up to it, which I'm, I, I'm probably going to have to do because they do unrighteous things. And if I say the things that are true, people aren't going to like that. Now, if I talk about the good things that government's for, the other side isn't going to like that because they're trying to overthrow this government. So for me to tell the government that's trying to overthrow the government, hey, you know, there's some good things these people have done. Oh, how dare you? So you have, you're hated by everybody. That's why Jesus got put on the cross. He goes on and he says, Therefore you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. Wait, did I go too far? Sorry. Um, yep. But also because of your conscience. And for this reason you pay taxes. <laughs> what season is it? Can we just kind of marker that one out, right? Like, I don't think he understands our tax system. Anyway, by the way, if you didn't pay taxes last year, our state decided to give you a refund. Think about that for a minute. How do you get a refund when you didn't pay anything? Like, if I went into Kohl's and asked for a refund and I didn't buy anything, they probably wouldn't give me anything. Anyway, so that's besides the point. It says, since the authorities are God's public servants continually attending to these tasks, pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. See, the way we end up owing people things is because we don't do things God's way. We do things the world's way, and the world is always about getting you in a position where they can control you. That's debt. That's finances. That's every job. It's always about manipulation to get you into a place because they know they can't trust you. They know you won't do what you're supposed to do, and so they're constantly manipulating us into it. Christians are supposed to be the ones that say, I recognize I have to participate in that system, but I just want you to know you don't have to manipulate me. I'll do what I'm supposed to do because God has changed my life, and Jesus would do that if he were here. We're supposed to be different. And we're not so often. Now, does that mean that, again, we, we shouldn't stand up to bad government? No, absolutely not at all. But what Paul is saying is, if you, if you keep thinking a new government is going to finish the Great Commission, a new government is going to finally fix things, you are sorely wrong. I've said this over and over again. I love my country. I'm glad I was born here. I will serve the government that God has put me under being here. But I pray and hope that other believers in other countries would have the same heart for this very reason so that their citizens, their families, and, and the future people that come from it would see the gospel on display. 
people willing to go to the cross. And we have brothers and sisters right now around the world that are going to crosses every day and dying because they won't keep their mouth shut like their government says, but when their government drags before them, they don't try to rally all the Christians to kill the government. They do their best to defend their faith. They do their best to tell the truth, and they're hated. He goes on to say this, or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? Paul writes and he says, do you not realize that what you're going to do when you get to heaven is you're going to make judgments? You're going to sit on thrones with God and be co-heirs with him. You're going to cheer the righteous justice and judgment when it comes. We as humans are going to have, those that know Jesus, are going to have the angels paraded for us, and we are going to cheer for the judgment they deserve, for the choice they made to not live out the created worship beings they were supposed to, but they got on Satan's team instead of God's, and we are going to, we are going to cheer God's justice and cheer that we received his love because of our repentance. If you don't know how to make judgments right now, you're going to feel really weird in heaven is what Paul's saying. It's going to feel really strange to you if you don't know how to righteously judge with other believers and look at the world and not be afraid of all the authority, this powerful angels that are going by, and Satan is an angel who will be judged. Oh, Satan is so, no, no. We have, he's like, do you not know? How do you consider yourself unworthy to judge? You have the word of God. You have it in front of you. You should be able to make these judgments. The problem is, are you ready for this? I don't like God's judgments. It's not that I don't know. I just don't like them. Because it leads me back to the cross every time. And I want to look at God and be like, I got enough cross. It's time for me to get some for me. It's time for me to have the good life. It's time for me to get what's mine. And I could just see Jesus in heaven like do like a face palm. Like, show me how I lived that way when I came as a human, the perfect human. And he looks and he says, why can't you righteously judge ordinary matters? It's ordinary for people to do sexual stuff wrongly. It's, or, it's ordinary for people to be greedy. It's ordinary for people to lie. These are all very ordinary things. You do them, I, we all do them. It's ordinary. You're going to feel really weird when you get to heaven and the extraordinary is in front of you and you're like, I don't even know what to do. Paul's like, you need to understand that you've been given an incredible gift to be able to settle disputes between people and to be able to declare and turn people over to Satan and call them unbelievers so that we know to love them and care for them back into the body of Christ if they're never in it and say, we love you, don't do this. Not, ha-ha, we got you, you get out of here. Like I talked about last week. That's not our heart. He goes on and Second Peter says this. He says, there were false prophets among you, people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will 
secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them. And I will bring swift destruction on them. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of the truth will be blasphemy because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, like the angels, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tarsus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. Peter's writing and he looks and he says, look, these ways that we do things, we've been deceived. We're believing false things. We've got to stop. We've got to get back to what God says is true. And just know that there's always going to be these people that want to come and they want to use manipulation and they want to make the cross sound so much better than it really is. They want to kind of clean everything up. They don't want to tell you the full truth because they know that you'll reject it. They, they know you won't sit in it. They know that you'll get uncomfortable and want to run. And so he's like, there's going to be those that try to come in and they're going to be greedy and they're going to do these things. And Peter's like, I'm warning you, don't, don't go with them. There's a judgment that's coming. Jude says this, now I want to remind you, though you all know these things. I love that Jude's like, duh, you know these things. Paul's like, hey, you should know these things. The Lord first saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And he has kept with eternal change and darkness for the judgment of the great day the angels who did not keep their own position but desired, but deserted their proper dwelling. He reminds us that the angels aren't going to get by. Neither are we. And so we should care that there are going to be people that are going to end up in utter darkness forever. That should concern us. That should be on our heart. That should break our heart. Not sit back and go, ha ha, I'm great, you're not. I'm not going to stab that dark. That's the wrong heart attitude. He goes on and says this in verse 4. So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? You go get the best lawyer you can find that all your friends who aren't believers have told you about or the ones who are believers have told you about how well they got them what they wanted. Again, it's not wrong to go to the courts. We just read about submitting to the authorities and it's not wrong. Paul appeals to the Roman authorities at the last of his death. It's not wrong but why is it that's where we run to? It's because Paul's talking about, just like with the situation, it's the lust in our heart. It's the, it's the desire to be right and to have my rights. And Paul says, so you'll go out and select lawyers and judges. You'll vote for judges. Remember, we live in a country where we actually select the judges. I know they're at the end of your ballot. You probably don't even know who they are and you've not researched them, right? You're like, sure, yeah, retain that guy. I guess, I don't know. Retainer, yeah, that's fine. You're still selecting. Have you ever thought about the people you've selected to be judges in your own life to help you walk with Christ? Who have you given that authority to in your life? To be a judge over you for your good, for repentance, so that you can glorify God. Paul's saying, who do you have? Because that's discipleship. And the reason you don't want to do that in the church is because you'd rather have the legal authority on your side so that you can kind of manipulate things and manipulate that legal authority to get what you want. Because the law can always be manipulated. Always. 
And in most countries, you can manipulate it with just a small payoff. You just pay off the authorities and you can manipulate it to your advantage. And we're not too far from that in this country. The people who typically get off have the best lawyers and have a lot of money to pay them. And the ones who don't have good lawyers and are poor go to prison for a long time. And we think we're so much better. We're just like Paul's day. He goes on and he says, I say this to your shame. He looks and he says, where is the shame in the church? Where's the feeling of shame of, I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to go. I'm sure Paul felt like, I don't want to have to go before the Roman authority. Just leave me alone and let me preach the gospel. I'm not trying to overthrow you. Peter said, I can't. He said, I have to honor you, emperor, so just leave me alone. Nope, nope. Everybody's telling me you're trying to overthrow me, Paul. I'm not. I actually believe God puts you there. I think you're nuts and you're crazy, but you're there. He goes on, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? There's no one you trust? then why are you a Christian and why are you going to church? And if you say, well, yeah, that's why I can't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites and nobody to trust. And you'll go to lawyers and human courts and to work every day, every, except maybe on the weekends, and, and that's fine, because why? Because my lust, there's a benefit to that. But coming to the church and giving my life, there's really, I don't, there's no immediate benefit to that. Like it doesn't, doesn't pay off right now for me. And Paul's writing that. He, he's, he's laying that out clearly. He's like, so you, you can't find one person that you trust that knows the gospel that will lead you to Jesus. You, you can't give yourself over to one person to help you. What is wrong with you? What's wrong with your church? And why are the leaders okay with it? Paul's writing to the leadership of the church. This shouldn't be happening. He goes on and says this. Instead, believer goes to court against believer. And that before unbelievers. That is an exclamation in the Greek. Paul is like, and you're so unashamed and you're so about your rights that you will drag your fellow believer into court without declaring them an unbeliever, without turning them over to Satan and having that church conversation of one-on-one, two-on-one, they go before the church, you throw them out. No, 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 none of that. No, no, no. He says, you will go before unbelievers and take them to court. And he's like, do you not understand that when you do that, you defame the gospel? You make that judge sit there and go, yeah, you Christians, your God doesn't have anything. I'm God in this case. See, you guys can't fix nothing. You're Holy Spirit. What a joke. I'm the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what's true. Because your God obviously isn't as good as me. Because you had to come to me for your answers, didn't you? And that's exactly what Paul's saying to this church. He goes on, he says, Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. What a mess. And then he goes on, he says, Why not, look, this is where the rubber meets the road. Underline this in your Bible, star it. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat. 
and you do this to believers. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Now he turns it around on those who think they're taking people to court. You ready for this? They think they're taking people to court righteously and Paul spins it around and he says, if you're doing this and you haven't gone through the process of declaring someone an unbeliever and there's no other option that you have and you've got the body of Christ behind you supporting your decision to go to court and we don't want to do this, we don't want to have to do this, but now this is the right thing to do. Hopefully by turning them over to Satan's courts, turning them over to that legal system, they'll repent back to God. If you haven't gone through that process, Paul says... You better question your own salvation. I didn't write it. Paul did. You better check your own heart as to why you're not willing to endure injustice. We have counseled people in this church to go to court. And most of the time when we counsel them, it's not for their benefit. We ask them to go to court because the other person won't submit, the other person won't believe, the other person won't trust Christ, and typically we're asking the person going to court to actually suffer to try to win that person back to salvation and back to repentance, which sometimes means standing for what is right so that they feel the other person feels that. Sometimes it means I'm going to do the right thing even though the other person isn't asking me to do the right thing. We have someone doing that right now in our church who is going through a legal battle, and I have never watched a man love and care and be more sacrificial and more surrendered in his process of going through this than I've seen him. It has humbled me as a pastor. It has broken me. It has angered me. Is he perfect? Nope. That's the problem. He knows he's not. If he thought he was perfect, he'd get the right lawyer and he'd lawyer up and get everything he can. And instead, he's looking for any way he can to make God glorified. He goes on and he says this. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if that's where you find your identity, when you are confronted with your sin about greed, when you are confronted with your sin about practicing homosexuality, when you're confronted with your sin of adultery, or you're confronted with an idol, and someone comes and says, I see this as an idol in your life, if your response is, how dare you, you can't tell me, and you become verbally abusive to that person who's confronting you, you better question again whether you really know God. Versus saying maybe, well, I don't see it that way, but I'm willing to at least have you tell me and pray about that. I, I mean, I, I know you're a person that wouldn't just come to me because you're just trying to hurt me. So, wow, maybe I need to consider what you're telling me. Can you give me some time to pray about that? And maybe we can get back together. Yes, that sounds like someone who knows Jesus. He goes on and he says, and some of you used to be like this. Used to be. So you got to remember, there are people who are still like this in the church. And Paul says there should be a noticeable difference. If you've come to know God, it's going to affect all areas of your life, even your government life, and your, it's going to affect everything, how you respond to things. And he says, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were made clean. I, Paul is saying, look, I know you've been through some dirty stuff. I know you've been through a mess. 
I know you've done some dirty stuff and it's awful. And he says, but do you realize you've been washed clean? You don't have to hold that on you anymore and make decisions from that weight. That weight's been thrown off and now you make decisions saying, God, I'm yours. I got nothing to carry around. I got no resources. I've got no sin. I just have you. Help. Yes. He goes on. He says, you used to be, but you've been washed. And he says, not only were you washed and made clean forever and given a home in heaven, but God is in the process of cleaning you every day like a baby who keeps pooping its pants. He cleans you up again and again and again. That's sanctification. Helping you to learn how to eat solid food, which Paul talked about earlier, instead of just staying on milk. Helping you grow up. That's becoming more like the family, more like Christ. And then he says, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, and if in the process of sanctification, and you know you were washed, if you start to think, oh, I may not be saved, oh, I'm, I still struggle with sin, oh, I don't know. If that's what you're thinking, remember, you've been justified not by what you do and by your works, but by what Jesus has done for you. So you can get back on and be like, so I keep sanctifying me. I know I've been washed clean. You have, justice has been carried out for you. The reason you're trying to get justice all the time is because you don't believe you have justice already. That's what Paul's saying. You can't trust the justice of God, so you got to try to run around and get justice for yourself. If you understood that you've been justified, that God is being patient with you and he's changing you, and you've been washed, then your heart for other people will be that they see that. That will be your identity, he says. He goes on, Hebrews says this, about this idea of submitting to the Spirit. Hebrews says, talks about having brotherly love, showing hospitality. He says, remember the prisoners. He says, marriage must be respected by all. Be free from the love of money. Be satisfied. These are all things that Paul is, or maybe Paul, the author of Hebrews is writing. Then look what he says. Look, be satisfied with what you have. For he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to have my rights. What can man do to me? See, that's how all the people of the Bible stood before authority every time. Pharaoh, Peter, Paul, they stood before authority and say, I'm here, you have the right to do certain things, but what can you really do to me? You can't really do anything to me because my citizenship's not here. The stuff I live for isn't here, so take it all away. Doesn't matter. Then he goes on, he writes this. He says, therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Don't imitate their lack of faith. I have a lack of faith. You can see it. Don't imitate that. When I'm having a lack of faith, do not imitate my lack of faith. Call me out. My wife does a great job of that, right? I'm more of a pessimist. She's more of an optimist. Praise the Lord, okay? It goes on and it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Doesn't matter what the government does. Doesn't matter how the government changes. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, picking sides, getting on all this stuff because you're going to fix your problems. Don't do it. 
For it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods, since those involved in them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals were blood, whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus offers up also suffered inside the gate so he might sanctify the people by his own blood. We're going to celebrate communion because of what the author is writing right here. And he says, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. We're going to be disgraced like he was, for we do not have an enduring city here. There's nothing I'm trying to get. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, Through him, let us continually offer up God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. This is how the church should work. And unfortunately, it doesn't. Unfortunately, we don't take that on to settle the disputes that God calls us to. 1 Corinthians goes on and says this, everything is permissible for me. But not everything is helpful. See, Paul just got done saying that questioning their salvation, and when he did that, now people are throwing Paul's words back at him because they don't want to deal with what he just said, right? They're doing an end around. And Paul says, you've heard me say that everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. That's quotations. Paul say, I said that with you. I say it all the time. It's one of my catchphrases I use. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. For food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise, up, raise us up by his power. Don't you know your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Paul says, look, because of what Jesus has done, you can do anything and it's forgivable, but it ain't beneficial and it may take you out. So be careful what you do. And then he goes and he talks about food for the stomach, right? The stomach was designed to put food into it. If you eat nails when you go home today, it won't go well for you because your body wasn't designed to store nails inside of it. That's what you use little boxes for, little containers. Maybe you save your Cool Whip. You put nails in there. Don't put them in your stomach. That's not the design. Paul is saying it's not the design of God for you to put garbage in your heart and in your life. That's not his design. And one of the ways that shows up most importantly is through sexual immorality. It shows that you don't understand what your body's been designed for. It's been designed to be a worship factory for God and you're turning it into an idol factory for your own pleasure and to pleasure other people so you can get something from them. Whether that's maybe a feeling of love or a feeling of being wanted, whatever it is, that's what you're doing. And Paul's like, don't do this. Don't you know that your body is a part of Christ's body? When you do it, you're actually asking Christ Jesus to participate in it with you. And because he never leaves you or forsakes you, he actually participates in it with you. There's a sense of him watching and shaking his head and turning and being like, don't, 
And he embraces the the pain and the suffering, and he brings healing when we don't deserve it. And we're reminded that this body, with all of its mess, it's going to be resurrected one day. This, the food's designed, you know, stomach for the food, and it's going to go away. But the body of Christ and our earthly bodies are going to last forever in new bodies. Our soul will last forever. This isn't a temporary thing. This is a forever thing. And when you participate in sexual immorality, you're declaring that you don't believe what God says. He goes on, he said, so should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? And remember what prostitution is. Prostitution is offering yourself to someone for something. It's an exchange. Offering something God says you shouldn't offer so you can get something that you think you need, that God doesn't give you. That's the basic definition of prostitution. That's why God's favorite way to talk about his people in the Old Testament was calling them adulterers and prostitutes. Even though they weren't practicing adultery and prostitution, they were just doing idolatry. He said, nope, that's the same. And he goes on, he says, absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says, the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then he says, run from sexual immorality. Run from it. Don't try to deal with it. Don't try to control it. Run. Can you imagine how many Christians would be running around our city if we practiced this? Can you imagine how, like, all of a sudden you see me or see Jason or see Mark or somebody, and we're running fully clothed, right? Just running. And you're like, what? why is Matt just running? I'm like, I'm struggling today, so I took a run. Like, right now. I just left. No change clothes, just go. Run from it. And we should run to God. It's not running from something, it's running to someone. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, you need to run to him. You see, Jesus has bought you with a price. You're his property. You're his. And that should make you just say thank you. That you're loved and cared for that much and it should change you. And that's why he goes on to say, every sin a person commits can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. In other words, you're dragging other people into it. Those people may be a part of the body of Christ one day. You may be dragging another believer into that sin. And that's a serious thing that you need to deal with of why are you doing this? And you're doing it against yourself just as much as you are them. And you're declaring something God doesn't want declared to the world around him. He says, don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is a double meaning when Paul gets to the end here. When Paul says glorify God in your body, he's not just talking about the individual person. Because this conversation started back in chapter 5 talking about a sin that was affecting the whole body, two people that were believers in the body. And so while Paul is saying there's a body you have, he's also saying through this whole passage, through the legal system, why isn't there a submission together to the church body? 
Why aren't you all working together as a witness to the world so that the world says, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of people that are just and patient and loving and kind. I want to be a part of of a people that believes in eternity and there's something more than this crazy world. I want to be a part of a people that will tell me the truth when everybody else every day is manipulating me and lying to me so they can get something from me. I just want to be a part of a family that just looks at you and says, no, this is the truth. If we were doing that in the church today, our churches would look very different and the world would see the church very differently. And that's why Paul writes this. Can I just encourage you? We're going to take communion. As we take communion, it is the reminder, like we read about in Hebrews, it is the reminder of what Christ did. He went to the cross on our behalf. When we take communion, we are agreeing to pick up our cross, to follow him. We're agreeing to saying in our hearts that Christ, you have settled the dispute that I have with you through your death And one day you're going to settle the disputes of all the world because you're going to come back again. And when you do, you're going to make things right. So I know that you've settled everything. And I thank you as we do this as a church together. We do this as a body. It's not you and Jesus taking communion. It's you and everybody who's ever taken communion in the history of the world saying we agree to what God says. It is a legal transaction that's already happened on your behalf, and it's a reminder that this is where I come to with my sin. This is where I come to with my worship and my glory. This is the ultimate authority. And when we go from here, then we, like Paul, like he's writing to the church, try to figure out how to do our lives in such a way that we settle the disputes in our lives biblically as God says to settle them. And we lean into the church through that process Because I would rather lean into you guys who at least know Jesus and have the Holy Spirit on some level than to lean into secular authorities who don't understand what this communion table means. Because the secular authorities won't lead me back to this communion table. The secular authorities will lead me back to my own cross with no resurrection. So this morning, let me ask you, as we go through this passage, I don't know where you're at. Here's what I do know. Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth because he wants them to repent. He wants them to say, I trust you and I don't want to do this anymore. I surrender and I'm going to ask for help and I'm going to declare to you and I'm going to take it with the body to say, I need help. And then Paul says, you should go to others for help so that you can settle the dispute of the sin in your life that you have with God that you keep wrestling with. You need help to help settle that dispute. And you need to be sure it's someone who's going to encourage you and love you and tell you the truth and be long-suffering like God is long-suffering with us. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. It's written through the Psalms I don't know how many times. And you need somebody that will walk with you through that. That's why we take communion. It's that reminder. So some of you just need to say, I'm going to actually believe that. Some of you, maybe you're doing well. Maybe you're like, man, God, thank you that you've changed me. I'm not like I used to be, like Paul wrote. And you just need to worship when you take communion and say, thank you. Maybe you need to ask yourself, why am I not a part of a body? Why have I not connected myself to a church? But I'm willing to connect myself to a job. I'm willing to connect myself to legal authorities. I'm willing to connect to all these things, but I'm unwilling to give my rights away to a body of believers. Listen, 
It may not be us. I'm okay if you decide this is not the church God is asking me to give my life to. Fine, go marry another one. Just get married to someone. We're gonna look at that next week. Get in with a local church and give yourself to them and they're gonna be a mess just as much as we're a mess, I promise. But it's worth it because it's what God asks us to do as imperfect as it is. So this morning, as we take communion, I want you to think through that. You can surrender your life to Jesus now and say, I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. I realize what you've done, and I realize I'm living more like the people Paul writes about that don't know you than I am the people that do know you. So I surrender. And maybe for you as a Christian, you just need to come back to sanctification, to repentance. I've been washed. Jesus has washed me with his blood. I've been sanctified And I'm ready to remind myself at communion that he has justified me and he has made me right before him and he wants me to get the help I need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, it breaks my heart that unfortunately these words that I speak are just not words that are practiced very well among believers in our day. Lord, even in my own heart, I don't practice this as I should. So I ask your forgiveness and I thank you that communion is that reminder for us as a church to really look into our heart, not to take it lightly. And Lord, I pray that if someone here doesn't know you, I pray they wouldn't take communion just to fit in. Communion is an intimate declaration of an inner truth. I pray they would just in humility not take communion if they're not a believer. And if we are believers, I pray that we would take communion with the right heart. And if we don't have that heart, maybe we wait for a minute or Maybe we wait until the next time. Or maybe by faith, even though we don't have the right heart, we take communion because you can give us the right heart. So Lord, we come before you as your people. As Paul says, we come before you and recognizing that you've settled our dispute and you've sent us out into the world to help others settle the dispute they have with you. Help us to take these words to to our heart and help us to respond properly celebrate you and celebrate what you've done to bring right relationship in the world and right relationship in your body, the church. And thank you for your grace, your forgiveness, your justice, and your truth as we try to figure it out. We pray all this in your name.